and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, uh, we have a daunting task in front of us. Yeah. Uh, a little peek behind the curtain. We're doing a couple episodes tonight. Um, this is the first of two. So by the, by the end of our Comic-Con preview episode, we might be flagging a little bit or a little slap happy. In, other, in either, either case, it will be horribly annoying to listen to. Oh, no question about it. Uh, I agree with you, David. Um, <laughs> we don't do that enough. We don't do uh, just, that's correct, David, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, We're and- always at each other's throats. It's kind of our thing. Is that you what know? is that what our thing oh, is? Sure, yeah, arguing with each other, <laughs> one upping, getting one another's goat. Fair enough. I can't argue with that. See, that's the first time. This is the first thing we agree on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and I should uh, I apologize in advance for this and the next episode because today I had a three hour plane ride, a ninety minute bus ride, and then I was in the car for like another hour. And I got home a half hour ago, so it and now is, we're gonna do two. Podcasts. And now we're gonna do two episodes. Have you so. eaten? You gotta eat something. Have I eaten? Let's see. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, was I say, ate, you're not gonna make it. I ate during that car ride. I had some Wendy's, two Junior hamburgers, ketchup and mustard only. Thank you very much. Oh, is but it, that's reference to our premium episode, which everyone should buy for a dollar twenty nine, with yes. Bill Dwyer. Yes. Um. Is it just called the Junior Hamburger? I haven't been to a Wendy's in forever. You're missing out. They don't have like a name for it? No, it's just a Junior Hamburger. It's smaller than a small. But I'm, I'm saying, okay, does does Carl's Junior... Oh, um, I'm sorry, does does Wendy's have a signature hamburger like... I guess Carl's Junior has their $6 burgers. You got the Big Mac, you got the Whopper, you got the... What's yeah. the Jack in the Box one? The, the Big Jack or something like that? Uh-huh. It's called... Uh, it's something like that. Uh, no, Wendy's does not have that. You just say they have different. They have. They still have the spicy chicken sandwich. Uh huh. That's good stuff. Why are you asking me? This is good stuff. But you You're know what? Out. I was uh, going through the drive-through with a friend of the show, Josh Long, the other day, and uh, he couldn't help but notice that they uh, have a new hamburger with like a uh, a pretzel type bun. Sounds great. Like soft, like a soft pretzel yeah. type bun. And you know what? That sounded kind of good. To yeah, me. I bet that's good. So. I don't want to sound my my not knowing stuff about Wendy's. I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of non fast food eating snob. Right. I just don't live you near just... a Wendy's. I go to all the other ones all the time. Yeah, I live near two Wendy's, and that's good. <laughs> that way, I'm covered in either direction. There was a third, which they turned into a Starbucks. What good does that do anyone? I know. There was a Wendy's right by my old place that they turned into a Starbucks. It's annoying. They're as following hell. you. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get this guy drinking some coffee. <laughs> So, all right. All so, right. Uh, before we get to our sponsors, you wanted to talk about uh, some some box office news or some interesting box office facts. I don't know if I wanted to, if I say I wanted to talk about it. We we're uh, groping for uh, something to talk about at the top of the show. Yeah, I'm and sure there are listeners who are like, just get to the fucking topic. <laughs> like, if we oh, don't yeah. have anything to talk about, undoubtedly. If if you want us to just get to the topic and you don't want us to do any top of the show discussion or any banter, keep it to yourself. Just, oh, I was going to say email David. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, but no, and then we started talking about it, and you actually st- did start to get interested in the... Yeah, in the- so, and I guess, you know, a whole episode could probably be devoted to box office, and... And someday it will be when we have a guest who knows more about such things. It, absolutely, because for us and our friends, it's all speculation. Um, if I, I don't even really engage in it I don't all. really. I don't, I don't really, really either. I don't care much about it, except that if it's a movie that's good, I want it to do well. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember being very, you know, bummed about Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, um, not doing so well. And it's but that'll tie into our Comic Con episode, anyway. 
Stay tuned. So, uh, but the th- but here's the thing. So we don't necessarily predict. We don't really engage in that. But what we often will do is be a little too dismissive of audiences in general, especially around summer blockbuster season. We'll say like, "Is that going to la- make a lot of money?" Of course it is. We say stuff like that. Would do, you say that's correct? Do I correct? say that? Uh, I don't know if when I say we, I mean just the body of uh, film nerds. Okay. I feel like we just, and in doing so, we wind up uh, being dismissive of the film and every film, every mainstream film goer. Yeah. Um, yeah. For example, here's uh-huh. one coming from me. Uh-huh. Is Grown Ups Two going to make a lot of money? Of course it is. Well, I mean, the early where I mean, it's Thursday night that we're recording this, and there mm-hmm. are already tweets of like sold out midnight screenings for Grown Ups Two. Absolutely, people got to see it. <laughs> They've got to see it. What's going on with these characters? I have to know. But you know what? I It's like Harry Potter. I have another... I have a personal rule that I'm pretty good at following. Not that good. Okay. Which is not to judge a movie that I haven't seen. And I haven't even seen the first Grown Ups yet. Fair. You know what? I, <laughs> um, <laughs> but Based I'm on the gonna... assumption that someone someday is going to make you watch Grown Ups. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I'm not going to... Uh, I'm going to withhold judgment on Grown Ups 2. Oh, I won't. Okay. Uh, I try not to do it, but every once in a while. And you know what? There have been movies that surprise me. And if the day comes when I watch Grown, Up to, Grown Ups 2, having not seen the first one, uh, and I am surprised, then I will say, hey, everybody, I was wrong. It's happened before, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's one where my first thought is just like, ugh, this movie looks awful. It's a sequel to a movie that, for, by all accounts, was awful. And it's probably going to do great. You know, um, but so I think that's probably about as far as I go as far as uh, speculation uh, on box office. But there, but that's not to say that I'm not sometimes surprised. And the fact that the Lone Ranger did not do well at the box office actually does kind of surprise me. Um, it's when you look at it, you know, when you when you say it, the first thing is, yeah, I, I would have thought with with the kind of marketing push that it had that it would do well just because so many people were aware of it yeah. when you think about it um one of my favorite uh things i ever heard or read anyone say and i've said it a number of times on this show before but it was an interview with brad bird um talking about the mentality of people who greenlight movies mm-hmm. um and the his example is if you had a year where there were four movies in that year that did really well and in all of those four movies, the hero wore a red shirt. Yeah. You'd have studio executives saying, we need more movies with guys in red shirts. Right. Uh, and so I, I think that's essentially what Lone Ranger is like, okay, established, you know, it's a it's a property with some recognition. Yeah. Although I'm not sure how much recognition it has among the target audience. Um, you get, you, pull, you, you know pair what? Gore Verbinski and Johnny Depp. You have him act. He's essentially Jack Sparrow, but a Native American. Yeah. Um, I've seen one trailer. This is always the one trailer. Um, but I, I imagine it's the kind of thing that seems like a home run to the people who greenlight movies. But the thing that we've seen and that Brad Bird is illustrating is that um, the uh, the actual sort of alchemy that makes um, for a hit movie is a little more enigmatic than that. Yeah, there's and, still something And people tan- get sick of the same thing Just eventually, eventually. It might take... Like, people who don't go to see as many movies as you and I, yeah. you know, it might take them longer to get sick of it because they're not seeing it as often yeah. or seeing all the, tra- you know, they're not following the trailers and then marketing as often. 
Um, so it might seem to us sometimes like the mainstream audience is content to get the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. But no, people get sick of the same stuff. And I do wonder, and of course, because it's summer movie season, every week there's, I would say, I'd say every week there are two notable yet very different types of films. And mm-hmm. so this came out same week as Despicable Me 2. And mm-hmm. so immediately it's like, all right, kids that maybe were interested in this cowboy movie, ostensibly, um, well, they're just going to go to Despicable Me 2, leaving, okay, so now I guess, so leaving us with the adult uh, demographic who maybe aren't that, who probably do know what Lone Ranger is. But, but I don't think Lone Ranger, again, I saw one trailer, but it doesn't seem like it's really aimed at adults. I don't think, I think between, I mean, it's between pirates, May and it's, the end of, or between April and the end of August, you don't get a lot of movies coming out of the major studios that are aimed at people over 25. Right. Well, w- sorry, when I say adult, I mean over 11 or something okay. like that. Because Despicable Me, too, is aimed at people probably 12 right. and under. So Same. between 12 and... I know 13-year-olds. They're not adults. I don't actually know any 13-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do know an 11-year-old, my nephew, who I went and saw World War Z with. And uh, you know what? He didn't love it. <laughs> He thought it was actually kind of. He, he pointed out some plot holes on the way home. It was interesting, but I um, uh, love that. Yeah, he's Smart a kid. Start. We're we're getting him started early, but um, but yeah, and that's the thing is in the in the studio's defense, which is not something I say very often. Uh, you know, even if it's just the slightest flicker of recognition, which Lone Ranger is, it's like all right, Lone Ranger, Tonto, people have a high ho silver. That's Lone Ranger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. hi-ho silver way. Like, there's some stuff that just kind of uh, we've all sort of absorbed, even if we never watched the original TV show. So, you like, know, when okay. I say that, I, I as a kid was I've, I've never seen a single frame of the TV show, but I knew hi-ho silver. I knew Tonto. I knew the theme song was the uh, William Tell Overture. Is that what it is? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, so I knew all that stuff, even though I'd never seen the show. Right. Even as a kid. And so, so I think I, people I take it back. inherently know that, and. Uh, and so the studio is like, okay, Johnny Depp is a draw, and especially when say when we say from the creator of from the director of Pirates of the Caribbean, it's Walt Disney. Uh, it has the same feel of Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, Rango did very well. So if they say from the maker of Rango, I don't know if that ever draws anybody I, in. I don't know if people like if the people that you're trying to reach with with this with this kind of advertising, meaning people who like who aren't like us, who aren't like already paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, all the time to movies. I don't know if that does mean anything to them. What it could mean is, did you like Rango? You'll like this. But they can't say that. They have to, you know... It's why they'll they'll grope for anything... I've said grope twice. I apologize, everybody. Uh, but it's why they'll they'll grab for anything... Like for like from the producers of well people don't give a shit about producers from the but, studio that brought you Shark yeah, Tale exactly like that. they'll look for any opportunity to say this movie you like this is like that one and so I feel like I mean looking at all this it does seem like Lone Ranger maybe if released on a different week would have been much more successful they even got a little bit of built in controversy there with uh, with the Johnny Depp character but maybe people were just sick of Johnny Depp that's possible I mean uh, again if my theory is right that that as far like movie type stuff, you and I get sick of stuff faster than the rest of the country. The normies, <laughs> the normies. Um, then it, they're about due to be sick of Johnny Depp because I've been sick of him for quite a while now. Um, whereas I'm sure there are, uh, 
because uh, I'm always like worried about sounding like a snob. I'm just saying I pay attention to movies. There's stuff that goes on in, say, sports that I might get sick of a year or two after yeah. the after normal normal people, uh, or I guess I'm the normal one here a year after sports fanatics. Yeah. So I'm just I want to make it make it clear. I'm not saying yeah, that we I'm, all have our not our saying thing. that I'm better. I'm just saying that when it comes to movies, I happen to be paying a lot of attention where I'm not paying attention to other things. And it's just like politics. I don't even know what's going on. Who's oh. the president? Well, I'll tell you who he isn't. <laughs> um, anyway, it's uh, yeah. So it's just something that I that I wanted to bring up because it, if it were to be, if it were simply an equation, like you and I are talking about, if it were simply an equation, Lone Ranger would be a hit. But there is more to it, right. and After Earth probably would have been too, especially because they downplayed M Night Shyamalan's involvement, um, yeah. and just like. I don't know. It's and I remember at the beginning of the summer, I did read a couple articles here and there. The movie that everybody predicted would bomb was World War Z because they thought people were sick of zombies, hmm. and uh, that did well. And also, um, anytime a movie goes through re- reshoots, yeah, um, you get prognostication that it's going to bomb. But again, most of the movie going public from a movie like that doesn't yeah, they know that there were reshoots. They weren't following this story for a year and a half, like like. Like Some you people and I might have been again. I, I don't read. I don't actually read much movie news, but even no. through osmosis, being a guy who talks to people about movies all the time, I know that there were problems with World War Z. Yeah, so, so yeah, you can't predict it. That's where that's where we arrive. Yeah, and it's and the Lone Ranger is the I think the best indicator that you cannot predict these things and you can't pre-program them. Well, um, you know, I was going to say this for the next episode. We tack it on right here. Um, we're really seeing that with Pacific Rim. Right now, okay. which has been, which was tracking, because studios do tracking. I'm not sure if it's like exit polls or mm-hmm. I'm not sure what. Uh, I guess it's not exit polls because uh, they would have had already seen the movie. Yeah. I guess they're polling people in some way to see what the interest is. And um, Pacific Rim was not tracking very well, around 30 million uh, opening, um, which would be bad for a movie that cost that much. Yeah. Uh, but now I was just reading that. Uh, advanced ticket sales for the weekend are um, at this point even higher than World War, World War Z was at its time mm-hmm. two weeks ago, whenever that was. So uh, at the time of, that you're hearing this, Pacific Rim has opened and some of the numbers have already come in, if not all of them, depending on when you're listening to it. But right now, uh, it is up in the air how Pacific Rim will do. Will it beat Grown Ups too? Stay tuned. <laughs> um all right. We'll talk about Pacific Rim later in the show. Yeah, stay tuned. I have things to say. Uh, all right. Now, real quick, grab your tweakedaudio.com slash pretension earbuds and push them a little closer into your ears. We've got some important stuff to t- talk to you about. And if you don't have tweakedaudio.com slash pretension earbuds, hit pause, go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, select one or more of their uh, professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors at low, low prices. And by using that slash pretension way into the website, you get one third off and you don't have to pay for the shipping. So that's what you should be doing right now. Make sure you got those, put them back in. Now you're ready to hear our advertisements. Hit is the debut book from Gentleman Baby Comics, an independent publishing company based in Tallahassee, Florida. Issue 1 finds Connor Connolly, right-hand man of vicious crime boss Patrick O'Reilly, dispatched from his hometown of Boston to Hot Springs, Arkansas. The job? Kill two anonymous targets living in a suburban home. But when the time comes for Connor to pull the trigger, he realizes all is not as it seems. Supporter... 
Support creator-owned comics by visiting www.gentlemanbabycomics.com. That's www.gentlemanbabycomics.com. And get a physical copy physical copy for $5 or a digital copy for just $3. Like Gentleman Baby Comics on Facebook for more information and updates. For a moment, That's it sounded w- like... That's <laughs> w- no, For a minute, so you said physical copy, but it sounded like you said fiscal copy. <laughs> I just thought, That's why oh, I said okay. it twice. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so seek that out. And then, uh, now real quick, so uh, we do have another sponsor, and the time is of the essence, everybody. All yeah, right? yeah. Uh, if you enjoy uh, independent film and you want to try to support that, then uh, seek out uh, The Suspect on Kickstarter. Uh, the deal is this... Uh, they are not raising money to produce the film or even to do post-production. The movie is done. It's finished. Uh, it stars Mackay Pfeiffer and William Sadler and a number of other actors. Mackay Pfeiffer from Eight Tor- Mile. Torchwood Miracle Day. That abs- What? Um, and William Sadler, I can't think of a weird thing to pick for him. Because I, I did Kinsey last week, and that's a pretty strange He's in Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2, yes. So. He's naked in that one. He sure is. Is he naked in this one? Only way, one way to, one way to find out. By um, donating to the Kickstarter. Indeed. If you donate over $50, you get naked pictures of William Sadler. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he didn't officially sign off on that. But, no, uh, they're from the Die Hard 2 shoot. <laughs> <laughs> the directors of the suspect just took photos of the frame. Just, just you see the glare off the TV. Uh-huh. But, uh, okay, anyway, so uh, so if you want to support independent uh, films, so this movie is done, and they are looking for uh, funds to get some, some screenings out there, some industry screenings to submit it to film festivals, and that sort of thing, and so uh, the film... I believe in the, in the Kickstarter video, they describe it as being a, a mixture of uh, In the Heat of the Night and The Twilight Zone. Uh, both of those I like, and yep. I like the idea of putting them together. And so, uh, so I, I will list off, li- list off some, of the, uh, some of the rewards that you can get. So, but I, so I want to read this and make sure I got it right. Uh, just visit Kickstarter and search for The Suspect. Pledges start at only a dollar. There are some very cool rewards like one-sheet posters, books, music, and even one-of-a-kind props. I looked that up, and actually you get a shirt that Mackay Pfeiffer wore, oh. uh, which is... And part of me was just like, that seems weird. And then I realized that we gave away a shirt that Pat Healy wore for the innkeepers. So yeah. who am I to judge? Uh, but here's the thing for everybody listening. Uh, as a bonus for BP listeners, with any and every pledge you guys make of $5 or more, you'll receive a PDF of the screenplay. Uh, so I will say, everybody, here's the deal. As of this recording, I think there's only four days left. As of the time this goes up, there will only be three days left. So if you want to help them out at all, now is the time to do it. You can go to Kickstarter, search for The Suspect, or you can go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the skyscraper ad on the side. That's right. Okay. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, it's, um, if you've, uh, I don't know if you've looked down at your MP3 player. Uh, or, or Zune, perhaps? Uh, sure. I mean, I don't know if they're still, uh, you know, so I, I don't know if Zune still supports podcasts um i don't know if zoom still exists i don't think there are they, they are no longer in production uh, but yeah i don't know you got this from the uh blackberry podcast directory indeed um which i think is a thing we should tell everybody by the way that we are we, we never ma- mentioned this but we are on stitcher now so you can get us through that as well yeah if you want if you want i don't know <laughs> we're not going to sell it very hard but we we yeah. do want because that doesn't count toward our downloads it doesn't 
But if you want to, you know, whatever, however is the best way for you to hear us. Uh, yeah, that's true. Go ahead and, and do that. I'm that's, more interested in people hearing us than in getting lots of downloads. Indeed. Although that's good, too. I'm not in this for the downloads. Um, <laughs> You're in for the money. <laughs> exactly. That sweet suspect cash. Um, yeah. Uh, where were we? Okay, so you've looked down at whatever uh, MP3 uh, playing device that you're using to listen to this, and you've noticed probably the episode number. Now, you're, your eyes haven't made it right of the episode number yet, mm-hmm. um, or else you'd know what I'm about to say, and I know that you guys don't do that. Uh, but if you just looked at the number, you've noticed that it's a, it's a three-digit number. Mm-hmm. So the, the third number being the final number, the one the number that the number ends in, is zero. And so you've probably already figured out that because the number before the zero is not a zero or a five, that this is a profile episode. So I'm um, sorry. I, all I heard was www, uh, <laughs> and then just self indulgence over and over. Uh, so this in because uh, the day that this podcast goes up, um, Guillermo del Toro, or as. Josh Fadum called him on the episode that you weren't on, um, Guillermo del Tormo, which is now how I think of his name because of Josh. Uh, but Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim is opening. So we thought, why not try and get a few more page views or downloads? Because that's what we're in this for. Is that and, why you suggested this? Uh, no, because okay. it's because he has a relatively short filmography and we got to get through a lot of shit tonight. Indeed. Um, we thought we'd profile Guillermo del toro and we we looked over the filmography and realized that between the two of us Tyler i think we've I, seen everything right Ty, yeah we, we've seen everything that's been released i mean yeah, he's got that stuff. he is directed we are talking about him as a director not as because he's produced things as he's, well oh he's produced yeah mountains of stuff but yeah. not in the mountains of madness which he was supposed to direct i and, thought that was in the mouth of madness no uh is that what it is the john carpenter no, no is no, that no. john carpenter in the mouth is that of madness. Clive Barker? Yeah, I, I shouldn't have added the in. I think it's called Mountains of Madness. Oh, okay. I don't know what it is. I don't know okay. nothing about nothing. There's something about <laughs> Mountains of Madness that he was supposed to direct, and he didn't. Um, we're also not going to be talking about The Hobbit because he didn't end up directing The Hobbit. Oh, if only, if um, only. Yeah, that uh, probably would have been better. Uh, I mean, I like Peter Jackson, but but you didn't like that movie, not one bit. But then again, I don't I liked like it one bit. I did like Martin Freeman. I liked I liked him. No, the the Gollum stuff I liked. Yeah, that was good. Um, but then again, I don't like uh, Guillermo del Toro's latest film. Yeah, I don't know why I had to like keep it a secret. Yeah. Oh, hey. Easy so anyway, there. the first one we're going to talk about. There's some earlier stuff on his IMDb, some uh, TV stuff and uh, short stuff. But the first film we're going to talk about, or that you're going to talk about, is Kronos. All right, because I've never seen it, and I, I know, saw it. I know, right? I'm responding to all the people at home who were like, what? I feel like that's not one of those movies they would do that with, right? If people can email me telling me that I need to see Trees Lounge. Have you seen it yet? No, but it's, it's actually pretty... I know it's a big priority for you. It, it is actually... Yeah, I've made my sort of list of stuff that I'm going to get to this summer, you know, when there's less TV on. Mm-hmm. And not because of that guy, but not despite the guy either. Yeah. I'm going to watch Trees Lounge probably pretty, pretty soon. You and so, I should also watch... Uh... Cannonball Run while we're at it. Maybe I'll watch Lethal Weapon. And then have Kyle Kyle Kinane back. I agree. To finally talk about Cannonball Run. We should have, we'll have Kyle on and Mike having seen Lethal Weapon and Cannonball Run. And then maybe we'll have that, uh, that listener on and talk about Trees Lounge. 
yeah, we're. Uh, I can see us doing two of those three things. <laughs> two out of three ain't bad, David. <laughs> um, okay, so Kronos. Yeah, I actually just saw it uh, recently, the uh, the other day. By the other day, I guess I mean like three months ago. Yeah, if you don't know Tyler, then you should. Well, you should know that any time in the last five to ten years is possibly potentially the other day. The other day covers the last eighteen months. If it's five to ten years, then it's a while ago. If it's over that, then it's when I was a kid. <laughs> Although at this point, ten years ago is like when I was in college. Yeah, you were not a kid. Ugh. We're getting older, David. Were we ever so young? You know, what's interesting, real, uh, quick tangent. So I went back, uh, somebody, I think it was uh, comedian Chip Pope, I think it was him, sure. on Facebook, he uh, mentioned Madeline Kahn, and he uh, posted uh, her big scene from Paper Moon. And uh, I watched and I was like, oh man, Madeline Kahn was awesome. And then I realized that her episode, the episode in which we profile her, um, is uh, no longer available. It's so an episode like 20 something? I think it's like 30. 30. I mean, it's, you know. It's either, well, at that time we were doing every five. I, <laughs> I know. Were we ever so stupid? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and so I went back and listened to it. David, our voices have changed. I mean, that really? was about five years ago. Five, six years ago now. and uh, for the better. Oh, I think so, definitely. Okay. Um, our voices have gotten deeper. They haven't well, changed. more cigarettes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in in five years when we're doing this, provided we've not killed ourselves, uh, then you'll just be like, hello, Tyler. <laughs> just, I'll be doing it with Tom Waits. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, right. it's fun to revisit the old days. So, Kronos, what do you think? Uh we're going to try to keep this one kind of short. Again, we have two yeah. episodes. Yeah, right? let's, yeah we'll, we'll get right into it. So get right into it. That's, that's fun, 26 minutes in. Um, yeah, well, here's the thing is, so I watched it. I liked it a lot, but of course I watched it. Um, it's his first feature as far as I can, as yeah, far yeah, as I can tell. It's his first feature yeah. and it's, and I've seen it after all the other ones that I've seen uh-huh. of his. And so watching it knowing what he would become i think maybe put me at a slight disadvantage um because when i think of guillermo del toro i think of a man who peddles that sounds almost negative but he he deals in the grotesque uh, quite a bit yeah and he finds the humanity in it and that's one of the things i love i love about him uh and you see some of that in Kronos, and you see a couple of his little trademark things, but it's actually surprisingly tame. Uh, but the, it's it's the story of this uh, this old man who, actually, a couple of old men. One is a good guy, one's a bad guy, and uh, they don't know each other. But um, they find this little gold ball that it's so fascinating. It's uh, it has like legs. It's not alive, but it has these legs and it kind of it's sort of like clockwork um it would re- actually remind me quite a bit of uh i don't remember the name of the character but in hellboy there's a, a an assassin who is sort of kind of steampunk and he winds himself up like a clock whenever he's going to uh, kill somebody but anyway um so it reminded me of that and so this thing then jams like pokers into your wrist or into your heart wherever you want it to be on your body and it'll start sucking out your blood running it through uh an insect that is inside this gold ball and the insect like absorbs your blood and then puts it back into your body and sort of and it's rejuvenating and so but 
you also develop a uh, desire to drink blood. And so there's a, a, a vampiric element. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is uh, certainly an actor's movie. The actor who plays the old man, uh, the good old man, does is a really a well-fleshed-out character, and you do not expect him to be. You don't expect it to be his movie, really. Hmm. Um, and there is, I think, probably the most... There's a lot of really good scenes in it, and Ron Perlman is uh, one of the bad guys, and he's just delightful. Um, but uh, but probably the most interesting scene is one that that has a grotesque element, but it doesn't have the, uh, you know, the crazy creatures and stuff that we come to know uh, Guillermo del Toro, but it still has, it does not shy away from what is graphic, and basically uh, our hero is uh has a desire to um drink blood though he doesn't necessarily he doesn't declare it and he doesn't necessarily know what it is he only knows that he's attracted to it so he's at a new year's eve party and uh it's a crowded room and then he sees a guy uh like get a bloody nose or like i think he like slips and falls and and hits his nose or he just gets a bloody nose so the guy excuses himself to go into the bathroom and uh, our hero follows him into the bathroom and just sits back and watch and watches as the guy, you know, is trying to get everything worked out. And so finally he gets everything uh, done and he exits, but he has dripped blood onto the counter. Mm-hmm. And so our hero, it's a nice, well, just a nice drawn out sequence. And so our main character will, he leans down and he's going to drink the blood. But then immediately uh, a guy comes out of the stall and our character and it, it's kind of comical but it's also uh-huh. quite sad and really horrifying as well because those counters can't be clean well, and so like but <laughs> yeah. hang on i'm not done okay the guy comes out from the stall and he's like oh this is gross and like wipes the blood like just wipes it off of the counter and you just see like our main character is heartbroken the guy leaves the bathroom at which point our main character notices that there has been a couple drops of blood on the floor mm-hmm. So then he gets down on his hands and knees, basically lays on the floor and just starts to like lick it up with his tongue. And it's so, I mean, it's gross, it's horrifying, but it also, it's very pathetic as mm-hmm. well. And that, that it's, it's a theme that I'm going to be returning to over and over again is it's really gross, but there is, it's not merely that he actually uses this, this really quite horrifying image and he uses it to create emotion and empathy and sympathy uh within us and i I just i really like the movie i highly recommend it okay well i'm glad you've got um that kind of theme because what i want to talk about which sounds like it's already there is this uh and you mentioned the word grotesque but it's also there's a there's got to be a better word for it but i think grotesque is actually the right word for it but there's also a, a sort of um uh, well, there's a fantastical yeah. uh, element um, to it, uh, but also th- there's a a mix of things that are, I don't know, supernatural, outlandish, maybe is a better word, with yeah. things that are very recognizably organic, not just necessarily, not, not just human, but yeah. things like you're talking about this, like, bug, you know, and that'll get us into our next film here, yeah. but, um, like, he's very much... Uh, interested in the biology of mm-hmm. of the things that he you know uh the the creatures and stuff you see it very much in blade 2 
um because there's we'll get to that yeah uh, mimic it's in mimic as well um mimic yeah well, let's get into mimic but i also wanted to say because you know the reason we're doing this is specific rim you know um the the kaiju the monsters that are all you mm-hmm. know uh different um that you know he's obviously very interested in in creating them in a unique way and they each have their own uh specific biology and and they're and they're very well well designed uh in in that sense it's not just it's not all the kaiju don't look the same no two kaiju look the same okay uh and it's clearly because he has fun uh coming up with i guess speculative biology maybe is a way to yeah say. so what do you what do you want to say about mimic this is the first one that i've seen okay um i saw that one fairly recently as well and and i haven't seen it in 10 years yeah and it's it's always interesting to see uh you know a foreign director get brought into the US they give him or her but usually him uh a kind of a low stakes type of film often within a specific genre uh and then they see what the person can do with it mm-hmm. um and uh so they gave mimic a pretty run of the mill creature feature and they gave it to Guillermo del Toro and he and I hate to sound like a a studio executive, but just like, and he brings the Del Toro touch to it. But uh, I, I think I talked about this on our like WonderCon minisodes because um, he talked about Mimic at the Pacific Rim panel at okay. WonderCon and how it's um, the one film he's made that he's not entirely proud of, um, and he doesn't blame the executives. He blames. He says that even if it is the executives, no, no filmmaker should ever blame anyone no director should ever blame anyone but himself for his movie not being good um and so he you know basically was uh it's without saying it it sounds like what he's saying is that you don't get rid of now if he'd had the same experience would have walked away uh, oh okay because that he was you know being made to make a movie that was different from what he wanted to make but it still does have a lot of oh absolutely not here's one of the things that it has and this is okay he does not shy away from darkness both visually and thematically and uh narratively i mean we've we've seen a number of horror movies and creature features and we've kind of come to know who is safe Uh they are not safe in mimic this includes children and the elderly yeah um I mean, you know, like when you like early on a couple of uh, adorable moppets who are given, by the way, who are given character traits. They are not merely, oh, yeah, they're not you know, just, they're not. Uh, I hate to put it this way, they're not Alex Kintner, Kintner from Jaws. They're not the kid who merely goes out on a raft. You know, who is given depth by virtue of we we get to see his mother. Mm-hmm. But these kids are actually given something to do. They're given personalities. And then they are killed, and they're killed quite uh, savagely, and it's quite horrifying, and it's, well, it's very scary. Well, it's done mostly with sound, though. Yeah, in my, in my memory, at least. I mean, it's very dark, and so a lot of it is stuff you have to imagine. But then yeah. you will but get the little flashes are, of stuff here are and there. Really graphic, yeah. as I recall. Yeah, and then, and so, and the, that's pretty early in the film, probably in the first fifteen twenty minutes, I'd say. Is that right? It feels later in the film because I felt like. In my again, memories change from yeah. reality. My memory, we got to know the kids better, so that's why it feels like it's like it thirty could be, minutes into the film. It could be the first thirty minutes, but that's still that's still fairly early at that point, um, and it immediately sets up stakes, and you kind of realize, all right, so I, I guess nobody is safe, um, 
and the look of the creatures is is spooky and creepy and i think it's in keeping with uh the types of of uh creatures that he would go on to be known for and i think it's i mean he might not might not be happy with it but it's a genuinely chilling and effective little film and maybe he didn't get to do with it everything he wanted to do but i think it's still certainly worth you know worth watching if you're exploring his films do you have anything more that you'd like to add to that? Uh, no, just that, um, you know, it's a movie about a giant bug. Yeah. And that he uh, uh, made something that looked like a bug, you know? Yeah. There's, uh, there is some CGI in it, which I, I think is part of the stuff that he's not happy with. Probably, yeah. Um, but there's also some practical stuff yeah. that is kind of silly, but I think that is it's in the vein of Guillermo del Toro. You'll see, especially when we get to Hellboy, a lot of silliness um, that he, um, uh, when he's on, which is more often than not, I think, he's one of those directors who is able to walk uh, a line of not being, uh, uh, doing things that could be, could easily seem ridiculous, but not, um, not crossing over into ridiculousness. Like a, like a Joe Dante maybe, or, or or Edgar Wright is a contemporary, but there is still, definite humor to his films yeah. like that scene in the bathroom from chronos it's all those things that i describe it's also kind of funny mm-hmm. because really when it comes right down to it it's there are aspects to it that are really no different than say a buster keaton film or any kind of silent comedy where a character wants this one thing and you know character wants to get his hat and the wind just keeps blowing it off mm-hmm. off his head or further away from him and just the look of like so there's that as well and yet the humor never undercuts the emotional stakes or the narrative stakes and uh it is that not necessarily more than anything but that is something that really astounds me and it doesn't surprise me that he and peter jackson are buddies because in the i'd say early stages of peter jackson's career that seemed to be something he was interested in as well was finding humor and wit in the darkest of situations it reminds me of something else we'll see in his films when you mention his buddies because he's also buddies with alfonso Alfonso cuaron Mm -hmm. and one thing they both seem to like visually is um to set a story in a in like a location that was once this great something grand and beautiful and architecturally uh astounding but has fallen apart a bit mm-hmm. that's something that he likes and you see it in the subways in mimic oh yeah um and uh you'll see it in more places uh yeah and it's a place that was grand and is now literally forgotten and it's mm-hmm. the fact and it's in the fact that it is forgotten yeah. that evil can flourish yeah well you know and speaking of Alfonso Cuaron um he made the Great Expectations uh the American Great Expectations oh, yeah. movie which is a movie that is largely forgotten and is not that great but in terms of like, visually it's awesome like what he does with I don't know how well you know the story of Great Expectations but Miss Havisham's house no. is uh it just has really fallen into disrepair in a very beautiful way yeah uh anyway um, that actually, that version of Great Expectations has given me one of my favorite stories to tell, which is a story you told me wait, is about, it about your your English teacher. Yes, who had uh, who warned us to make sure that when she assigned 
a book to read the book, not the movie, because she had someone turn in an entire book report on Great Expectations referring to the main character as Finn, yeah. which is Ethan Hawke's name in the movie, not right. Pip, which is the name from the book. Which, if I'm not mistaken, I think the first, maybe the first few paragraphs if not the first chapter a large portion of it is devoted to why he is called pip specifically <laughs> yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah whoever wrote that didn't even <laughs> didn't even put in that much effort so let's move on uh we want to move along here um after after mimic which was um again in retrospect now that we think of him as an auteur we can look back and find good things about it it's right. not a great movie but his next movie is great and is uh, one of the best and certainly the first great horror movies of the 21st century, uh, The Devil's Backbone, which you have not seen. I've right? not seen. This is a Spanish language one. Okay. Is Kronos in English? Uh, it goes back and forth. Okay. Um, so The Devil's Backbone is Spanish and Guillermo del Toro, though Mexican, this is a movie that that uh, takes place in Spain mm-hmm. after the Spanish Civil War where uh, uh, a boy is dropped off by his caretaker at an orphanage. This is where he lives now. Um and the orphanage has, in the center of its courtyard, sort of sticking out of the ground, an, an unexploded bomb that fell out of a plane during the Spanish Civil War. And it's just there. It's a very, like, not a very subtle, but a very potent sort of metaphor for um, something bad is coming. Something mm-hmm. bad could happen at any moment, such yeah. as, you know, a bomb could explode on the playground. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, immediately after he, uh, pretty much immediately, it's been, it's also been 10 years since I've seen this one, but the boy starts seeing a ghost, another, uh, the ghost is also a young boy who, mm-hmm. uh, I guess lived at the orphanage at one time in my memory. And this ghost starts warning our hero that a lot of the people at the orphanage are going to die soon. Oh. Um, and, uh, I don't want to give away too much and I also don't remember everything. Okay. But, uh. It's a really scary movie in the way that um, the best scary movies are scary in that it's uh, at least my favorites. It gets under your skin. It's not mm-hmm. like scary like there's no part where you're like, like oh my God, or covering your eyes or that sort of thing. It's like it's a really creepy movie that just uh, goes on and like, you know, it sort of plods forward. It has a very deliberate but very measured pace to it mm. and it just pulls you deeper and deeper into this atmosphere of something very bad is going to happen. So a literal dread. I mean, it's just an atmosphere of dread. But I'll I'll say one thing, despite it being more than 10 years since I've seen it, um, the first thing I remember thinking on watching it is that it reminded me of Stephen King in Hmm. that um, it is uh, very weird. And, you know, uh, I mean, Stephen King, despite, you know, he's a... He's a mainstream, no, a known mainstream figure, but he's written some stuff that's weird and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is that. It's very like it, it's disturbing. It's violent. It's uh, it's 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 weird. It's scary. It's creepy. But it's also ultimately humanistic, which is something that is uh, one of the defining traits of Stephen King's work. And yeah. I think is probably despite the fact that Guillermo del Toro seems so um, interested in things that are other than human, he is still a humanist himself. In his oh, yeah. best films. And it's occurred to me in the last, uh, in talking about Kronos and Mimic and, and Devil's Backbone, and then uh, when we go on to talk about Pan's Labyrinth, we'll talk about it then as well. Um, he does seem specifically interested in the impact that his stories have on children, one way or another. 
um, because while the main character of Kronos is this older man, we are able we do see the man's wife and we see his grandson mm-hmm. uh, very specifically, and uh, and so we see it through the grandson's eyes, and then there are children in mimic, not merely the 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 kids that get killed, but also one that uh, sticks around for a while. Um, and just, I don't know, there, there's something, and, and we'll talk very, like, much more about it when we get to Pan's Labyrinth, but there's something, it's almost as though, okay, this is maybe not the best analogy. So, have you ever watched a movie that you've seen before, and it didn't bother you? It could be, the content didn't bother you. It could be language, it could be sex, it could be violence, whatever. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother you. But then you watch it with someone that it might bother. And suddenly, stuff that just rolled off your back, it's not that it bothers you, it's that you become hyper-aware of it. Uh-huh, yeah. have, have you ever had that? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, in a way, it's almost like all of these horrors or just everything, or even stuff that isn't horrific, it all becomes more impactful because now there's a kid seeing it too. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's just like, oh, on top of everything else, there's a kid. This is going <laughs> to ruin this kid's life. You know, and it's just uh, that that aspect of like of innocence in the mix with all this other stuff. And I mean, you know, in Devil's Backbone, he's he sets his uh, he sets his story after a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with Pan's Labyrinth. Um, he does seem interested in the toll that this yeah that very real and and very human uh flaws yeah the toll it takes on innocent people and like in pan's labyrinth the the war may have essentially ended Mm -hmm. technically yeah but the violence doesn't uh i don't know what he's trying to say it's just something that i just thought of when you said that now in both cases there uh there violence continues to echo after the war ends yeah um I, I don't know what to make of that, but uh, I'm going to say Guillermo del Toro is probably not pro-violence or pro-war. I think that's probably a yeah, I don't know. His movies are pretty violent, David. Um, yeah, that's... You know what? You're right. That's the barometer. <laughs> um, all right. I'm being sarcastic, everybody, yes. obviously. Um, no, I don't have a lot to say about Blade 2. Um, I didn't see that one. But uh, have you seen Blade? No, I haven't seen any of them. Um, Blade... I feel like the first Blade, in a sense, has a better reputation than it deserves because it made Blade 2 possible. Okay. Not that Blade is bad. It's it's fun, the first Blade, but um, one thing I'll say about, about, the, about Blade, uh, the first one, which is, I think, 2000, it feels like it's from 2000 when you watch it now. When okay. you watched it in 2003, it felt like it was three years old. You know, okay. it's like it feels very much in that moment, you know, and it has some cool stuff. It's got Chris Christopherson and um, Stephen Dorff is a great bad guy. Uh, of course. It, for that kind of movie, at least, you know, he's very much hamming it up. Oh, yeah. Um, which is what you want. And it's a it's a it's a so it's a it's a decent but kind of corny movie. And then Guillermo del Toro came along and made Blade 2 and got to make uh, you know, we talk about. You know, we've already talked about um, how interested he is in the organic, um, and you know, uh, despite it being two years later, and you know, perhaps visual effects had uh, um, had evolved, he made a much more practical, uh, organic movie that feels much more rooted in the real world. Even as, 
even as it actually becomes more outlandish because you uh, are introduced to a, a sort of a new breed of uh, vampires um, in, in Blade 2. Uh, but that's where he has his fun is, you know, in um, designing these sort of feral, powerful vampires, you know, that are played by guys in suits, you yeah. know, and the, uh, it's... Yeah, and they, you know they spend a lot of time in sewers. It's like grimy and beautiful, and weird and uh, uh, you know I, I know I, I I like the word grotesque as you said, but I keep coming back to this uh, fantastic in the in the sort of old school yeah. meaning of the word. Like now, I mean I'm I fantastic is a word that I actually overuse when I'm writing movie reviews. I've started to notice uh, hmm. that's why I need an editor. Um, but now when people someone says fantastic, they just mean, oh, it's really, really good. Yeah. But what fantastic really means is that it, you know, came from a fantasy, mm-hmm. um, that it is uh, other than reality. So, yeah. Uh, and, and so I think fantastic sort of in the sense of, um, you know, there's a there, there's a style of cinema from the 60s and 70s called Cinema Fantastique, which I... Uh, I reviewed and Kyle Anderson reviewed a bunch of genre land films for the website, uh, I guess in 2012 when, uh, um, Kino's, uh, redemption, right. uh, imprint put out a whole bunch of genre land and that's very much, uh, cinema fantastique. And I feel like he's, he's rooted in that, hmm. but in a, in a more organic, uh, uh, I keep wanting to say body horror, but it's more of the bodies of non-humans that you see, uh, in this film, at least, you know, there's like an autopsy. I think on one again, it's been a long time, but uh, on one of the like Uber vamps or whatever. They're not called Uber vamps. That's what that's what they're called on Buffy. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, you know, you see like the rib cage split open, and it's hmm. very you know meticulously designed. So there's a body horror element. Uh, so anyway, don't want to spend much longer on Blade Two, but just wanted to say that he uh, he made it his own, maybe more so than he made Mimic his own, even though. Blade Two was part of a, you know, an established franchise already. Right. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like certainly visually, uh, he brought himself to it. Do, can you think of anything in Blade Two thematically that fits in with? Uh... Um, honestly, I can't say that I remember the story okay. uh, well enough. I know that. Um, um blade the character um who is naturally an uncompromising sort mm-hmm. uh has to sort of work with the regular vampires against these like again uber vamps mm-hmm. um and so i think that uh that gray area maybe seems more like something you see uh, in his in his stuff especially his earlier stuff and now that i think in in pan's labyrinth well, and now that I think about it, the, it might be, and per, and I don't know the story. I don't know if maybe he sought out to make the Blade Two sequel, uh, or he was, or the studio got him to do it. I'm not sure, but the the idea of a hero who, because of just who he is naturally, it seems like this hero would be on one side, but is in fact choosing to go against his nature and be on the other side, the side of good, often meaning defending innocent people mm-hmm. against, you know, the the supernatural evil and that sort of thing. Um, 
that seems to be, as we will then go on to see in the Hellboy series, that seems to be something he's interested in. Well, let's talk about Hellboy. Okay. Is that, that's what's up next? Yeah, I that's what's next. Okay. Have you seen it? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I've only seen the first one. Okay. I've seen both. Um, yeah. Uh, do you, okay. Do you like Hellboy? I do. Um, uh, I think I would like it more if I watched it now because I think sort of like when we were talking about um, Kill Bill mm-hmm. a while ago and I was talking about Kill Bill in, in particular but also the sort of wuxia um, kung fu movies, um, I had a tough time with those and Hellboy is not a kung fu movie but it has that same like the the sense of humor of Hellboy is often very silly. Yes. Um, and I think at that age, I had a tough time reconciling that. Which um, is strange, because even at the time, you were a big fan of Joe Dante, and Hellboy feels like a, tonally feels like a Joe Dante film. Maybe not, I mean, it doesn't have the pacing of a Joe Dante film, yeah, but it feels like one to me. Joe Dante has more of a, um, uh, there's more satire to Joe Dante, and maybe that's why that um, yeah. came across more to me. But you're right, I should have... Uh, it was my immaturity as a film viewer that kept me from being able to marry sort of, um, uh, you know, serious action and goofy comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And so I think I would probably like Hellboy even more now than I did then. And it goes to, I mean, it's, it so encapsulates uh, a lot of what we're talking about, even in just the character of Hellboy. He's this, demon who works for the government and basically fights uh supernatural monsters and that sort of thing on behalf of humanity uh he doesn't you know humanity doesn't know that he does this but uh, and it's a choice he makes so even though he's working in pretty much an- anonymity under the knowledge that the people he's protecting if they saw him would l- group him in with the monsters that he's defending them against um but what I think is interesting is that this character, I mean, he's, you know, it's a really good performance by Ron Perlman. He's big and giant and red. He's got this big stone right hand. He's got uh, uh, these horns on his head, but the, he's sawed them off, but he's still, there's still remnants of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just, he looks demonic. I mean, the character is basically a demon. Um, and he looks that, but he acts like just a regular like a regular person. And that does seem to, uh, just the character seems to go to del Toro's theme of finding the human and the humanity inside in the strangest of places. And, and we'll see that with, uh, the character of Abe Sapien played by, uh, our best friend, Doug Jones. I've never met him in person. Oh, indeed. Well, I guess he's just my best friend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so certainly just with the so I mean so much of it is embodied in that character, um, and then but there's so many really interest there's so many fun and weird things like when you start delving into the supernatural and everything that could possibly be, uh, it really does feel like Del Toro is just having a blast making that film, just you know designing these weird squid dog type monsters that can't be killed, the design of Abe Sapien. Uh, the, uh, well, but a lot of that does come from Mike Mignola, yeah, uh, yeah, who created Hellboy. And that's the thing is, as much as you and I crap on Zack Snyder for uh, just basically trans uh, transferring Watchmen and Three Hundred just directly mm-hmm. from the page to the screen, you know, Del Toro he just 
I think he saw the design of a lot of these things and said, well, I can't do any better than this. Let's just do this. This is, and then within it, we need to, you know, allow room for a performance to mm-hmm. flourish. But, uh, but yeah. And so, but like the, so yeah, I don't mean to say that these characters originate with him, but they sure, they certainly seem to resonate with him and the potential there. Like, I mean, I mentioned that, that Nazi, uh, assassin, who winds himself up he seems to be filled with sand uh (laughs) he became addicted to plastic surgery when they finally take his mask off it's of course horrific uh (laughs) and it's just you know and of course one of the things that's interesting is that uh by far the most boring characters in the film are the humans Uh um and tambor well i mean he's fun but he's he's a supporting character and as is john hurt but uh the character myers uh I think is meant to be. He's played fine, but he's he's viewed as kind of our in point, mm-hmm. uh, our our entry point into the film, and he's clearly he's bland, he's boring, and I think that's purposeful so that we come in and then immediately it's like, oh, all this stuff is way more interesting, and not merely to look at, but also they're just more interesting as characters. Yeah. So, and then I'll talk more about Hellboy two in a minute. Uh, the only other thing I want to talk about, I guess, this is a bit of a spoiler, is. Um and this is just me following up on that uh, uh, balance of of things. And, and tell me if I'm misremembering this, okay. and then I'll just edit the episode. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and again, spoilers. But um, John Hurt dies in the movie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And because uh, he, he's essentially the the Obi Wan. Uh, uh, yeah. Right? He's or the. the he... well, I would say he's the Morpheus, but Morpheus doesn't die when he should. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I'd say he's the Gandalf, but Gandalf ha- seems to exist on kind of this other thing. Yeah. Because, like, he does die and then comes back in a different form and yeah. all that kind of thing. Okay. Um, I guess I'm going to tell you off mic. Okay. Um, but, uh, uh, again, I, you know, I didn't rewatch a lot of these. I didn't rewatch any of these in preparation for this episode because we right. kind of uh, came up with the idea less than a week ago to do this. Um but I do very much remember his death in yeah. the movie. Um, it's very sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not... Um, uh, I mean, uh, uh, unlike uh, uh, other... You know, when uh, when Luke sees Obi-Wan eat it, mm-hmm. you know, you uh, in my memory, I haven't seen the movie in a long time either, but you pull back to Luke's point of view and it happens... Yeah, pretty much. Way over on the other side of the uh, whatever that big uh, cavernous room is. Yeah. Um, uh, and Hellboy isn't there when John Hurt right gets killed, and it's it doesn't pull back, and you're right there when it happens. I mean, yep. it's still a, it's a PG thirteen movie, but it's still the scene has stuck with me for being very upsetting to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's the stuff I'm talking about that I had trouble reconciling with Jeffrey Tambor's character being in the same movie um, that I think I would be much more receptive to now. Yeah. I Uh, think, I think it's just recognizing that these characters are, they're really like us. I mean, when you think about it, (laughs) I mean, how many people in your life are just kind of goofy and you view them and you don't know them remarkably well and you view them primarily as they make me laugh or whatever. I, there are a few of those in my life. Sure. Uh, but then my, my life has also had sadness and tragedy in it. And I think by, and I think, I think, I think also by couching all this in the fantastical elements, I think, 
I think all that gels together, especially at the end when you see all these characters who are um, kind of sort of opposed to one other, one another to mm-hmm. a certain extent, and then they all come together as a genuine team and as a as a sort of family, makeshift family. Yeah. Um, and and I'll get more into that in uh, Hellboy too. Um, you know, uh, I'm glad we talked about the John Hurt death scene because I. I mentioned it being uh, like Obi-Wan, and uh, that, of course, comes from the, you know, the structure of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope comes from Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, yeah. uh, as does The Matrix, and as does a lot of films. And I think um, Guillermo del Toro, as a, as a genre guy, as a comic book guy, um, you know, a guy who re- grew up reading comic books and stuff, he likes classical story structure. You know, and we'll see that going into Pan's Labyrinth for sure. You yeah. know, um, he, he's he he's not a guy whose objective is to come up with, uh, you know, he's not going to try and Chris Nolan memento you and like try to tell the yeah. story in a weird way. He he seems to like, and I appreciate actually that he likes a very basic, recognizable classical story structure. But then he doesn't. He doesn't use the structure to phone anything in ever. Right. Well, okay, we'll talk about Pacific Rim at the end. But um, uh, he, he uh, um, uh, so so the fact that John Hurt's character—I I can't remember his name—I should know it because I've read some of the BPRD comic books, which were are the pre-Hellboy, which where he's the main character, as mm-hmm. I recall. Uh, but I can't remember his name. But uh, John Hurt's character dies because John Hurt's character has to die at that point in the movie. Right. But he doesn't. Uh, pull the punches and make it seem rote at all right no and they commit yeah it's just uh it's a well done scene and and you're right everything feels i mean you keep coming back to organic and that applies in a number of ways to del toro's films and because i think with maybe the exception of of you know what even mimic actually now that i think about it cuz that's that actually subverts convention uh, as we were talking about with some of the characters that die although you know once the main characters are established it's clear that they're not going mm-hmm. anywhere but um but yeah there's an or- there's an organic quality to how the story is told there's a reason that the hero's journey uh unfolds the way it does and it's because it's the way that is the most satisfying to us even though we don't want the mentor to die. Uh, we understand that they that the mentor has to die. Um, right. Again, Matrix, I'm looking at you. The mentor has to die. Um, <laughs> you can't have your cake and eat it too because guess what? You spent two, two more movies wasting that character. <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. should have wasted him in the first film. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll defend The Matrix Reloaded to a certain extent in a lot of ways, but um, they didn't... They didn't they didn't make a case for keeping Morpheus alive. No, the all they did, all they really did, was cheapen the character. I think, yeah. like, and make him not really that interesting. So let's move on to Pan's Labyrinth. Okay, um, which is uh, a, a, a fable, I guess. I mean, it's certainly um, based on that. Uh, maybe not fable is not the word, but a, a fairy tale. Fairy tale is what yeah, I, the that's... word I meant to use. Um, uh very much very much like Alice in Wonderland um which I don't know if that's a fairy tale that's um that's actually a satire mm-hmm. uh uh but um that stuff doesn't you know the stuff that 
Lewis Carroll was specifically writing about isn't the same stuff that's happening now, or is it? Whoa. Uh, I don't know. I haven't read Alice in Wonderland in a long time. I apparently haven't watched or read anything in 10 years. <laughs> um, so just the other day. <laughs> Actually, that was a while back. Uh, so, uh, um, so yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is uh, is a fairy tale in that it has a young protagonist, um, young innocent protagonist, mm-hmm. uh, venturing into uh, a fantastical world. Yeah, I mean, it's it really does follow the uh, the Alice in Wonderland formula mm-hmm. to to a certain extent, in that you know we see this young girl's home life. Uh, for whatever reason, they are dissatisfied with it. Alice, because she finds it boring. Uh, the little girl from Pan's Labyrinth, because it is quite dangerous and horrifying and hostile to her mm-hmm. specifically. And so they both retreat into this fantasy land, uh, having been led there by, in Alice in Wonderland's case, uh, a white rabbit. And in the case of um, Pan's Labyrinth, the the, the Our fawn, friend Doug Jones. Our, our good friend Doug Jones. Uh, and so... And that's the thing is what I find so interesting because it's weird just – I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is very adult. I mean, it's in its sensibility. It's 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 quite frightening. It's quite violent. Man, that freaking cheek thing, man. Yeah. But and like, also, despite that, you know, we talked at the beginning of the episode about, like, uh, uh, advertising people who aren't necessarily paying attention to movies all the time. Right. Like, they did not entirely get across to people that this was an adult movie because I worked at the movie theater at the time and it just it has a little girl on the on the poster so people thought they could bring their little kids to it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I I don't know. You gotta do, you gotta do some research, people, because like I'm I'm no like I'm not a very censorious person. I don't think you need to protect your kids that much, but. Uh, an eight, an eight, an eight or nine year old should not see Pan's Labyrinth, probably, yeah. unless there's some sort of like super mature like freak of nature. Right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's not about like it's like kid. It's like hey, kids can see. It's like yeah, they're still kids. Yeah, sure, mm-hmm. whatever. Wh- whatever a parent wants to go ahead, that's fine. From a freedom standpoint, why not? Yeah. From a general common sense standpoint, you're going to terrify your child. Yeah. They're going to wake up screaming about the pale man. They may yeah. not know that's well, the name of it, but like do you know but do you know what? I actually think that's the stuff that's fantastical. We're going to see if we can break a record for using that word. Okay. Um is not the stuff that I would uh necessarily want to keep from kids because I think they can handle stuff that's scary. But I think when I watch a movie and again, I'm not a parent, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But um it, you know, my my parents always tried to protect me from like sex in movies. But um, to me, that's not when I watch a movie. If I'm like in a movie theater and I'm aware of this little little kid, the stuff that uh, upsets me is stuff that um, shows um, the the fragility or shows some sort of someone disrespecting a human person's life or well being or just a human body. You mm-hmm. know. Um, I think, you know, so someone getting their cheek torn in half. Yeah. I think. Even a villain. Even a villain um, is going to, in my mind, seems like it's going to be more disturbing to a kid because they might not have fully developed things about empathy and might not uh, understand that you should uh, respect another person's body. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so the same stuff. If that, I, you know, I do uh, object. I, I, I do think kids shouldn't be should be kept from sex stuff if it's, you know, rough or violent. <laughs> you know. Also, and here's the thing: is uh, I, sex in film does not bother me, and I don't think it necessarily bothered me when I was younger either. I think my parents tried to keep me from it, but I think some of it had to do with just the fact that you know, seven year old may have the vaguest idea of what sex is. They may know about it from a purely birds and bees, you know, where mm-hmm. do babies come from standpoint. But, like, to see it maybe in a, in a graphic way, mm-hmm. and I, I, this is, that's different than nudity. I mean, like, simulated sex. I just think that it's just like, I don't understand what this is at all and it might actually i could see being the whitest kids you know have a fascinating sketch in which they play like a bunch of, of kids going into town uh-huh. and then uh, suddenly they they open this door and then like the lights change and there's this weird music and they're just terrified and looking all around and then they just like leave all all uh dejected and then cut to i think 20 years later and they all go back into this room that they were scared to go into uh-huh. uh, before and suddenly like this is actually you know what? This is actually kind of great. And <laughs> and the room was porn. <laughs> and yeah. Basically. And so like so I do think like you know, you show it to a kid at too young an age and I think it might actually traumatize them and Yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. But porn isn't I don't know. Um cuz porn isn't sex. Porn isn't real. It is kind of its own thing, isn't it? Um but I'm talking about like uh a little kid seeing The Rock, right? Right. And Nicholas Cage shoots a rocket launcher point blank into a guy. Yeah. He then fly the guy flies through the air and lands on the fence and is impaled. Mm. And it's a moment you're supposed to cheer for. Like I don't think a little kid gets that. Like that should be like oh, the fact I, that characters aren't going aren't just like horrified and like throwing up, you know, <laughs> when that happens. Like that's the only real response. If Wouldn't you saw it be someone, neat if, if Nicolas Cage in the movie then throws up and is like, oh, yeah. this is horrible. So- that's why I love that joke in 21 Jump Street, the movie, when he's like, holy shit, you just killed somebody. And he's like, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Channing Tatum throws up as they're having his like badass, like shooting the bad guy moment. He throws yeah. up. I love that. Because that's right. If you saw a guy fall from the sky and get impaled on a fence, it would, I hope it would make you sick to your stomach. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and, and so I guess uh, we're we're so far off topic here, but that's the kind of stuff that I feel like sh- you should wait till a person's mind is a little more firmed up before they are able to understand the differences. Well, and that's the thing is, I think maybe that's one of the differences between you and I as children is, uh, I I drew really gross, gory pictures that got you know they got my parents a meeting with my teacher um you know one of those and i thought it was the coolest damn thing ever i read jurassic park so try to guess how often dis you know disembowelment worked its way into my weird drawings yeah i guess i wrote i wrote stories where people got decapitated and stuff oh when i wrote uh, i'm sure i've talked about on the show before but i when i wrote my 60 page opus sasquatch about uh (laughs) lethal bigfoots um (laughs) just destroying people yeah um yeah, it's uh, people weren't thrilled with that. All right, back to Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah, but but that is oh, go ahead. But that is what no, it, absolutely. It's uh, that scene is probably the most disturbing, which is weird considering how how much how many creepy elements there are from the Fantastic, and that I think is one of. The, I mean, this I think Pan's Labyrinth is the essential 
it is the perfect Guillermo del that's Toro was, film. That's what I was going to ask. Is that his masterpiece? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I hope he can... You know what? I haven't someday. seen Pacific Rim, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Hey, people. a lot of people like it a lot. Yeah, to each their own. But, um, but no, I think, I think it, it encapsulates... It's, it's like he was working toward it his whole life. Even more... Like, I feel like it's even embodied in the fact that it is in Spanish. It's like he felt like he had to go back to his native language mm-hmm. to make this film. It Again, though, be... in Spain, not in Mexico. Right, yeah, which is seems strange to me. But, um, but like, it's like he had to go back to everything he is, essentially, as a person and as a filmmaker, to make that film. And so you, you can look at all the movies that precede it and just pick out elements and put it together and you have Pan's Labyrinth. And then, of course, it's all – but none of it feels recycled recycled it all feels like its own thing and it's beautiful and it's scary and it's emotional and sad and yet glorious and inspiring at the end um and i've also found that um even though it is in many ways uh you know one of his or at least on par with his most fantastical work yeah um it is the film of his that i think reaches a wider audience than anything else because there are people who are there for the, you know, the like the the, the war stuff or the gore stuff or the fantasy stuff or yeah. they're there, you know, because they like the young female protagonist or or whatever. Like it it, and maybe you know, to some people it just feels like a more serious movie than than Hellboy or something, which is you know uh, disrespectful. But uh, still, uh, it, it it doesn't feel it feels like the least pigeonholed. Of his movies, mm-hmm. maybe is that what that's what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it is odd how when it came out, and maybe you know, maybe because uh, the people that you and I run with are just aware of that, um, and it was getting a lot of uh, Oscar buzz yeah, for also, a number it got, of things. Uh, you know, unlike say Pacific Rim, which is a summer release, Pan's mm-hmm. Labyrinth was a an autumn award season release. Yeah, and uh, so it was marketed, and it was the favorite yes. to win best. Uh, foreign film and it did not it lost to the lives of others oh that's right but yeah but i remember i i saw it and i loved it and i florian henkel von donishmark <sighs> that is the director of the lives of others i've never seen the film but i just like saying his name <laughs> yeah it doesn't it just sound like uh i don't know like like a 30 rock character who just <laughs> who is the essence of a of a foreign uh, a foreign uh i guess foreigner um and so yeah it's just it's it's it almost here's the thing. This is how much Pan's Labyrinth is a Guillermo del Toro film in it to its very core. Is it feels somehow uh, it feels anticlimactic to talk about anything after it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And yet we have to talk about uh, Hellboy two and Pacific Rim. Yeah, but it is. Um, it's my certainly my favorite of his films. It's his it's his darkest film and his most hopeful film, and it's his. And the uh, fact that it can be both at the same time is what we're talking about. Like he just he can juggle mm-hmm. different tones, different th- different themes, and make it all work. Um, and uh, I'm I'm looking right now to see um, his. Uh, um, we you know we're talking about Gamer Dator, not his cinematographer, but Pan's Labyrinth is probably I think one of. Uh, from a cinematography standpoint, one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. And the cinematographer's name is Guillermo Navarro, who has worked with him uh, on, on, I'm looking it up here, on Kronos, 
on uh, The Devil's Backbone, on both Hellboys, um, and on Pacific Rim. So on most of his films. Okay. So if we're talking about Guillermo del Toro and the look of his films, we have to also be talking about uh, Guillermo Navarro. Yeah, well... And he's somebody who really does like his collaborators. I mean, on Kronos, you've got Ron Perlman. He's... And then he would play Hellboy. You've got yeah, how many, Doug Jones. You've got you uh, know, his cinematographer. I'm sure if we were to look at other films, crew members. Uh, is it just the Spanish language films that Ron Perlman isn't in? Because uh, he's in Blade 2. He's in both Hellboys, obviously. He's in Pacific Rim. Um, is, oh, is he in Mimic? He might not be. I do not recall him in Mimic. But he's in Kronos. Okay, so all but three of his movies have had Ron Perlman. In. Yeah, and... Yeah, and, and Kronos, I think his character, I think his character even speaks Spanish, but I think he's okay. Speaks primarily English, but um, but yeah, and so uh, so we'll move into Hellboy too. Uh, I which I haven't seen. It's odd. There are people that don't care for it. I love it. I think it's great. And what's really interesting is after because I think on top of everything that Pan's Labyrinth was, apparently it was a financial success. I think it did quite well. I don't think it probably cost that much. Probably not. Although, it, you know, you wouldn't know what to look at. Yeah, it it's looks... beautiful to look at, but I mean, everything's, everything's, I don't know if there's any CG in it at all. There's got to be some, when the, the little fairies that fly. Oh around, yeah, yeah, I'm that's sure. Be, yeah. I'm sure that's one, but, um, but yeah. And so, uh, so clearly, and, and suddenly, you know, he's, his films are getting Oscar recognition and just, I think that, kind of pole vaulted him into a different uh a different level as far as what studios were willing to do and so hellboy well, now 2, those of us like you and i who don't um differentiate between genre and non-genre work already knew that he was a major talent oh yeah absolutely yeah I, yeah i want to make that clear because you heard i want to do an episode on this but have you heard this term vulgar alter vulgar auteurism yeah it's a stupid term because you know what there's already a word for it and it's auteurism and we don't have to separate. We don't have to say, like, it's different that I like Tony Scott. That I, The fact that I respect Tony Scott as a filmmaker and the fact that I respect Jean-Luc Godard as a filmmaker, uh, it, we're having the same discussion. It doesn't have to be like, oh, but he's a vulgar auteur. So it's it, it's like this. It's like separate but equal. We learned in Brown versus the Board of Education that there's no such thing as separate, separate but equal. So we don't need uh, we don't need to have this term vulgar auteurism. So I've I've heard it, but and I I'm, I know that we we need to uh, start wrapping up a little bit. But um, I've heard that term, and I thought I knew what it meant. But maybe I need to hear your definition. Well, what did you think it meant? Well, I thought maybe it meant- I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I thought it meant that uh, just acknowledgement, uh, Tony Scott's a good example, or like a Michael Bay, or something like that. Or Todd Phillips for me. Sure. And just people that are acknowledged to have their own way of doing things, but are not respected. Uh, see, I just because think that, it, because they work in a specific genre, yeah, or yeah, they, that, it, okay. that it has more to do with um, the fact that their movies uh, are... Um, are in genre and crowd pleasing and money making movies. Uh, Justin Lin is a guy who also often gets talked about, although I haven't seen any of his Fast and Furious movies. I don't recall any kitchen sink dramas by Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, he worked, and people would call him a, an yeah, auteur, exactly. no question. And we got to have this episode. We we got to have right. someone on who actually uh, uses that term so we can get in a fight with him. Do I know? Do we know anybody? Who? I don't know. Okay, we'll have to seek it out. Um, okay, 
So, uh, yeah, Hellboy 2, uh, the reason that I mention it is because it just, first off, I don't think the Hell, the first Hellboy did remarkably well. I don't think anybody was really clamoring for a sequel for it. Uh, but Guillermo del Toro clearly wanted it and was given, I mean, you, you watch the first and second one, clearly there's an increase in budget. He's been, so hmm. a movie that nobody was really asking for got greenlit with a higher budget. And... I think he uses it well. I think there is more CG, but I think it it's done. It it doesn't feel like CG. I mean, you know it. You intellectually, you watch and you're like, well, that's there's no way that's practical. But it it all feels like it exists in the same frame and in the same world. Um, like District Nine, would you say? Yeah, kinda. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good example. And so it. Uh, and what and it really just explores the the character of Hellboy, uh, a, a, an episode of more than one less that I'm particularly proud of, and it's a it's years old now, but in which I talk about Hellboy and Hellboy Two and just what who that character is and the and just how interested Del Toro was in developing that character um, and making him go against who he naturally is. Um, Sorry, my, my cat is distracting. Oh, I doubt me. they can hear it. Okay, um, going against who he naturally is, and going against this predetermined idea of what he was meant to do, so he can do his own thing, mm-hmm. and then with uh, with the second film, uh, delving into what I was talking about, this idea of like you're f- he's fighting against monsters when, for all intents and purposes, he is a monster, and people, if they saw him, he's like an angel. He's like Angel. From the WBTV series, Angel. Oh, okay. Got it. Go on. Anyway, so um, he uh, – and so it explores that. And and that's the thing is just every step of the way he is told – he's reminded you are different. And the fact that you are different, doesn't that make you want to just embrace how different you are? Or does it make you want to – does it make you want to conform more to what Mm -hmm. these people are knowing full well you're never going to or will you just embrace this other thing and and it's him saying i don't want to do either of those i want to i just want to be me i want to make my own choices and it's just so uh, that's the thing as 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 perfect a guillermo del toro film as pan's labyrinth is the perfect character for Guillermo del Toro is Hellboy. Um, and if if you haven't seen Hellboy 2, uh, seek it out. It's really good. Um, and it also features a character that I think is in the comic book. Uh, I do not recall the character, but he is voiced st- by far my favorite thing that Seth MacFarlane has ever done. Oh, He's okay. voiced by Seth MacFarlane. He's this uh, German uh, agent who um, basically exists as a gas that fills up this suit. <sighs> Um, speaking of voices, Doug Jones does his own voice in Hellboy 2. Yes, he does. He told the story on our podcast when I wasn't here about mm-hmm. that, about how um, the studio insisted on having a name do the voice of Abe Sapien in the first movie. Yeah. Um, even after he had done, when he, he had done all the acting. Yeah. So they brought in David Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce listened to the performance and said, What am uh, I doing here? Yes, what am I doing here? contractually he had to do it so he did it but he had his name taken off the movie yeah. so david Hyde pierce's name is nowhere in the movie um and then when they did the second one doug jones got to do his own voice so the um 
two morals to that story. Doug Jones is more than just a guy who wears suits. He's yeah. an actor. And second moral, David Hyde Pierce, class act. Class act. <laughs> There's no question about it. Yeah. So, okay, moving on. Uh, and we're not going to spend long on Pacific Rim because, you know what, my review's on the website. You should read it. You should have read it by now. But You, you can also listen it. to it. Uh, you, and yes, if you subscribe to the podcast, you should have already gotten, uh, assuming that everyone everything's gone according to plan, I feel like Bill and Ted here. Um, uh, assuming everything's gone according to plan, uh, you should have already been able to hear uh, the podcast or the review in the podcast feed. So you know how I feel about it. You know Tyler hasn't seen it. But um, it's a... Yeah, it's a bummer to end on because we've spent this episode talking about how much we like Guillermo del Toro, and um, even less than Mimic, Pacific Rim feels less like a Guillermo del Toro film than anything else. It didn't uh, seem like, aside from the monsters and stuff. And, and it there didn't also seem like is, um, um, God, I know some people are so like spoiler phobic that saying anything is a spoiler. This isn't a spoiler really at all. But um, uh, in case you just, in case you absolutely don't want to know anything at all then uh well don't you don't read my review because i mentioned this in the review too but uh there's one part where there's like a slum in hong kong that's been built up people have built up their sort of like lean-tos and and residences and shops uh in and around the bones of a dead fallen kaiju Mm -hmm. um it's a very cool production design thing and it also get to that organic thing that we're talking about mm-hmm. with you know uh with, with uh Guillermo del Toro and that that part uh really felt like him and 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 the um uh the Ron Perlman character whose name is Hannibal Chow um and who uh is a very uh idiosyncratic uh dresser <laughs> he wears very strange clothes um uh, yeah, that's what that meant. Uh, he feels like Guillermo del Toro, but also he's like it's like the silly stuff in Hellboy, except it's not funny. Like it, mm. it never manages to be funny. But I, I could even forgive that, um, except that most of the film just doesn't feel like him. Maybe it is just the preponderance of of of, of CGI, you know, that we don't normally yeah. see from him. Um, but also it just seems like as much as I talk about the inventive you know the inventiveness of the design of the creatures and of the the Jaegers the robots you know they're they're each different and that is there is some fun to that to like seeing how what's this next one going to look like yeah um but other sorts of uh inventiveness are just absent you know every fight scene in the movie plays out pretty much the same and in the same general sort of terrain so it it all gets to be very samey yeah. Um and then maybe the more heartbreaking thing for people like uh for people who like what the things that you and I like in movies is that um the characters are so thinly drawn. Yeah. Just Did you read my review? Uh I glanced over it, yes. Okay. And so and that that uh what what are they called the kaiju? The, the kaiju, kaiju or the monsters. Bo- yeah, the kaiju bone village sounded yeah. fascinating to me. But uh I but I I I I talked about how disappointing it is that, you know, um the um uh the 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 characters can be boiled down to such trite things like the examples i give in the um in the review where you know uh um one guy's whole character is that like i wish i knew how to tell my dad i loved him 
and then one of the guys whole character is i miss my dead brother <laughs> and th- there is sort of a through line on the page about um familial connection okay um because there's a lot of there's there's brothers there's uh you know there's si- other siblings there's sort of surrogate parent things that are there but they just sort of lay there and he yeah. doesn't explore them the way that that, that we think, know he can that we know he can and that i would have liked to have seen if it, if it ended up being a movie about the strength of familial bond whether um uh whether it's blood family or the kind of um manufactured family you build with the people you're closest to uh that would be great but i guess if i want that i can always watch buffy the vampire slayer because that's the what that show's about okay i've got two questions couched in one pre- in one central premise so the premise is you, David, are watching this movie and you do not know that Guillermo del Toro directed it. That's yeah. the premise. Yeah. Okay. I got two questions. One I'm sure I know the answer to. Would you be able to tell it was him? No. Would you like the movie? No. Okay. No, it's... Because, because my question, one thing that I was concerned about is like, is it more just disappointment that like Guillermo del Toro is better than this and I see no evidence of him in the film? But if this were directed by just Joe Schmo director, whatever, no, it is, Joe Johnston, it, it, <laughs> you know, who is the essence of a Joe Schmo director, <laughs> um, the Rocketeer aside. Yeah, I don't know if that's fair, but I'm not going to comment on that because um, I haven't seen enough of his films. But um, no, it is obviously uh, opinions on movies are exactly that opinions and so they're mm-hmm. entirely uh, subjective. But um, my thinking the film is bad exists in a vacuum of all other okay. knowledge about the film it is in my opinion a bad film made all the more disappointing by the fact that this yes, after the fact there's but, so much so much potential in this in this concept directed by this man yeah and n- neither of them pay off that's right okay all right i think we've done our shortest profile yet no question about it. All right. So um, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can email us, David at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow us on, uh, sorry, uh, you can follow, um, how does this go? You can follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, and so this will be going up Friday. Is that what we yeah, agree tomorrow. on? Okay. So uh, in a couple of days... Uh, right now, there's a, a mini-sode available at More Than One Lesson uh, in which we talk about Josh's, I believe, his sixth favorite film, uh, which is The Seventh Seal, Okay, which I find interesting. But uh, in a few days... You think he should have put it at number seven just to... I feel like, yes. I feel like, you know, with his number six, of course, being uh, The Sixth Man. Um, or maybe uh, The Sixth Day. Yeah, I thought you were going to say The Sixth Day. Well, I like to throw, I like to throw a curveball from time to I've never to time. seen The Sixth Man. I've seen The Sixth Day twice. Well, all right. I don't, know, I, don't know what, I don't know what kind of math that equals out. <laughs> um, but uh, but this, coming, this coming Tuesday, uh, there will be an episode about uh, This is the End. Uh, a lot of people recommended that I see it. The Doors it. song. That's the one. <laughs> Which is weird, because uh, I don't think you're going to like that movie, and I know you don't like The Doors. But, uh, you don't think I'll like the movie? You I said d- I should see it, but you I think, don't think I'll like it. Here's the thing. Uh, spoilers for the episode. Um, I think the movie's meh whatever it's okay but there are laughs in it so that's fine okay um i think i don't think there are enough laughs the laughs that are there are big but i don't think there are enough laughs and i do not think the film earns its premise okay so all right so find that at more than one lesson.com you can all uh find my 
uh, other podcast, Hey, Watch This, uh, at BattleshipRetention.com, where you can find all sorts of reviews and links to other podcasts in the fleet. Um, and, uh, well, I guess since this one's going up early, it's the same episode as the one I talked about on the last episode. Mm. Um, so uh, go ahead and listen to us talk about Ray Donovan and Inside Amy Schumer over at Hey, Watch This, and we'll have another episode up in a few days. Uh, is that it? What else do we say? Thanks for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 